looked at first, uh, we looked at second John and we looked at third John. And then a couple, uh, two weeks ago, we began looking at the book of Jude. Now, Jude, even though it's a short book, because there is so much there, we're breaking it up. All right. And so the main point, as a reminder from two weeks ago, is that Jesus is our Lord and master. Therefore, to be a Christian means to obey him. And Jude is preaching against those who use the grace of God as an excuse to sin. All right? That's the main problem that Jude is addressing. And two weeks ago, we saw that if you are a Christian, this is, working, this is actually anti-gospel. It is working against the good news that we have as Christians because it is not good news that we can just keep sinning and continue in sin because Jesus forgave us. Why is it not good news? Because Jesus came to set us free from sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but sin itself. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you won't want to continue in sin. It's only if we believe the lie that somehow sin is more desirable than what God has for us that we would want that. But if you recognize sin for what it is, destructive to a joyful life in Jesus, do you recognize that as bad news? And now Jude's main purpose is this, and it continues through this whole short book. Um, And in the middle, this is where he pulls the biblical support. He said the point in the very beginning, which we reviewed two weeks ago, and today we're going to look at the meat of the argument before next week looking at hit the conclusion. Um, and this is where, this I believe is why most people don't study Jude, this section that we're going to look at today. Even though it's a short book filled with a lot of dense, good truth, a lot of people find this portion of the book confusing. So we're going to look at it slowly. We're going to look at it together, look at the difficulties, and see if, uh, if we can't see the meaning that the Holy Spirit is communicating through this book and Jude together. But before that, as I was studying this portion of scripture, there's actually a poem that came to mind. It's a a poem that, uh, if you guys don't know the name, I'm sure you've at least heard it once. I think it captures the spirit of our age well. It's it's called Invictus. It's by William Ernest Henley, and I just want to read this for you. Um, I think this captures the spirit of our age well. When we look at what a heroic person is, who lives the life that we want to live, oftentimes we would look at this poem and say, yes, that person is truly living life how it's supposed to be. And so let, let me read this to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but I'm bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, William Ernest Henley was an atheist, And what he is communicating in this poem is this idea that no matter what life throws at him, he is unconquerable. No matter what difficulty, circumstance, and chance puts upon him, maybe he can't control that, but he can control how he responds to it, and he won't respond by being beaten down by it. And there's something in that that I think draws all of us. It's good and worthy of emulation, but I 
I want to draw your uh, attention to that last line again, because essentially what he is doing is he is he is kind of giving his middle finger to the circumstances of the universe, saying, you can't do anything to me. You may throw everything you have at me, but you can't conquer me. And even though I don't believe in God, if there were a God, if I were wrong, you can't do anything to me either to conquer me. That's his last verse. Let me read it again. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scrolls. What is he saying there? He's pulling Christian imagery to say, it doesn't matter if there's consequences. It doesn't matter if there's some God in the sky who says that I can't live this way. You can't control me. Why? Because I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. I think this captures our age well. When we look at a well-lived life, what most of us think about in our age is this idea that no matter what, I control my fate. No matter what circumstances happen, it can't control who I am. I control what is good, right? And yet, I say this age, but I think this is actually true of all ages. If you think about way in the beginning, the very first human beings, according to the scripture, Adam and Eve, what is their story like? Well, their story, where it turns, where, where the tragedy begins, so to speak, is essentially Adam and Eve saying that they want to be God and they want to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. In other words, they declared themselves that day the masters of their fate and the captains of their own souls. No circumstance, no God can tell them what to do. They will live their life how they want to live. And that's the case for all human beings since the fall. And Jude addresses this very clearly in this section of Scripture, this idea, this, this impulse of all fallen human beings. And what we're going to see, and what I want you guys to think about is, if followed through this ethos, this, this way of living, does it actually produce a joyful, fulfilling, good life? Or does it actually produce the opposite? And Jude's argument we're going to see is that it actually produces the opposite. So what I want you to do is invite you uh, to stand for the reading of Scripture. We're going to start in Jude, and we're going to begin on verse 5. So this is what the Holy Spirit through the book of Jude has to say to us. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed, but all that they like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, 
For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we study your word today, that you, um, as your word is read and as your word is preached, would, would send your spirit to convict us of where we ourselves have sinned so that we might repent and find healing and grace. And Father, I, I, I pray that this word would go to each of us, that and we know that as you send your word out, it will not come back without having done its work. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, before we dive in, I plan on walking through this slowly because that was a lot, right? To show you what the main point is going through each of these stories. But in general, what you saw was that Jude is taking these stories, mostly from the Old Testament, to make one point, right, about the, about the people he is writing against, right? And, and I'll walk you through each story to show you that, but first we kind of have something to deal with. If you've been a Christian for a while and you have read your Old Testament several times, you may have listened to this and gone, that's strange. There might have been a couple stories in particular that stood out to you, and as you heard them read, you go, I don't remember those stories. Right? So look with me in particular at two stories. So the first one starts in verse 9. But when the archangel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you know the end of Moses' life, uh, that while he led God's people through the 40 years of wandering, that he himself was not permitted into the promised land. Instead, when he was to die, God took him to a high place so he could see the promised land. And then he died there, and the people didn't know where he died. But it didn't say anything about angels disputing who gets control of Moses' body. I don't remember reading that in the Old Testament. In fact, it does not mention it. So why is Jude mentioning it? And there's another story as well towards the end. If you look at verse 14, it says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. A lot of ungodliness. We'll come back to that. You know, the Bible doesn't repeat unless it's trying to make a point. Um, but, but you might be reading that and go, who is Enoch, 
right? Those of you who have read their Old Testament a few more times might know that Enoch was an interesting character. The Bible doesn't say much about him, but what we do know is there are only two people the Bible records who did not experience physical death. One of them was taken. It was Elijah. I always get Elijah and Elisha confused. But it was Elijah. He was taken by God, sent his uh, angels and chariots to take him up to heaven before he died. The other one was Enoch. And it doesn't really say much about these circumstances. It just said that he walked with God and God took him. In other words, he didn't die. But that's all we have. This prophecy wasn't actually written in the Old Testament. So what do we make of this? And it gets even more confusing when we understand that there are two books written that are not a part of the scripture that do mention these events. One is the Assumption of Moses, where we get the story of the angel. And the other one is the book of Enoch, where we get Enoch's prophecy. So why, even though these books are mentioned in Jude, are they not a part of our Bible? Is Jude making the claim that these books should be considered scripture? And if so, why aren't we considering them scripture? Very good questions that we have to tackle. And, and, and so in order to answer this correctly, I think you need to understand how the Bible treats non-biblical writings, right? Because the Bible actually, several times throughout its book, actually mentions books that aren't a part of the Bible. One of those examples is Paul himself, who a couple of times, especially in the book of Titus, mentions um, non-Christian, non-Jewish philosophers. And in fact, he even mentions a prophecy of one by the name of Epimenides in Titus 1, uh, verses 12 through 13. If you want to look it up later, write that down. And he even says that his testimony is true. This is a non-Christian, non-Jewish prophecy that is being made. And Paul says, hey, look, it's true. And yet nowhere is Epimenides part of our scripture. And a couple other times he quotes these philosophers and these other non-Christian, non-Jewish writers and philosophers. And the Old Testament does the same thing. In fact, there's full of books that we don't have. It mentions, for instance, the book of the wars of the Lord, the book of Asher, and the Acts of Solomon, all of these are mentioned uh, in the Bible, but are not themselves in the Bible. So what do we make of that? Are these books that were supposed to be in our Bible and were lost? Are these books that we should be looking for to be a part of our whole Bible? And the answer is, as I'm sure you know, no. But why? Well, in the same way that I, as a pastor, when preaching the word to you, might pull stories and films and writings outside of the scripture that you guys know and understand, such as the poem I just read, right? to make a point, Jude and these other writers are doing the same thing. So Jude, his people he is writing to, they are familiar with both the book of Enoch and the assumptions of Moses, and so he's using those as an illustration to communicate a truth about God, right? This is not a strange thing. The Bible does that. That doesn't make these books scripture. And in fact, oftentimes when the Bible does quote scripture, it, it makes a point of saying, of pointing to the fact that this is God's word where it says it is written or you have heard. It gives these kind of tools and, and wordings to make us see, oh, this is scripture it is quoting. It's not just quoting something else. All right? Uh, uh, and so that's what we should make of these writings that are not a part of the scripture. It doesn't mean that they are scripture. It just merely means that Jude, like 
I, as a preacher, is using something that his readers are familiar with to make a true point, all right? And we know that, um, by the way, if you're curious about how we got the Bible and why we include the books that we include and why we don't include other books like the Book of Enoch, that is a study that I have a lot of resources on. In fact, we go through it every couple of years with the high schoolers. It's about time we go through that study again. Um, but I, I am very happy to give you those resources or even to go through it with you. So if you have more questions, definitely reach out to me on that. Um, but we can be very confident, at least of these books. Why? Well, because if we look at the Old Testament, how do we know what is in the Old Testament? What is truly the books that we include and what those we aren't? It's because in Jesus's day, they had the Old Testament as we have it today. And Jesus, who spoke a lot about the Old Testament, never once said, by the way, this is these books, this book of Enoch or the Assumption of Moses, um, you're not including those in the Old Testament, but you should. Or he never said about any of the books that are in it. He never said, by the way, you say this is scripture, but it's not. And Jesus talked a lot about God's word. If there was something in the Bible that shouldn't have been, or something that wasn't in that should have been, we would expect Jesus to have said that. So we can be incredibly confident that at the very least, the Old Testament is the very word of God. Why? Because if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then you know that he determines what is in the word and what is not. So that is one reason we can be confident in that. So all that to say, uh, a lot of times that's the hang-up for people when they approach Jude. They're like, what do we do with these stories? Now that we know that, now that we know that Jude is pulling in stories that are familiar to his readers to make a point, we can begin to look through what he is trying to say. And I'm going to give that to you up front. If you have your bulletins, it's right there. But here's the main point that Jude is making, and, and that is this. Rejecting God's authority leads to a life without purpose that ends in destruction. Now, where do I get that? Let's look together more closely at these verses, starting in verse 5, because something interesting, very interesting, we should note right here. It says this, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. So right now, Jude is going to remind his readers. He's not teaching them something new. He's teaching something that they should have already known and, in fact, did already know and profess and teach. But he's saying... There's something in this new teaching that you have forgotten. And what is that? And he says this, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Once again, if you're reading your Old Testament, this may be a strange sentence for you, right? Now, as Christians, we believe that God is Trinitarian. And what that means is how many gods are there? One. And how many persons in that one Godhead? Right. So we believe that God is one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that there is one God, and yet the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. But there is one God. How does that work? We don't know. God is far beyond our understanding as mere human beings to grasp. But God tells us that he is one God, there's only one, and yet there are three persons within that one Godhead. And so what do we believe? We believe the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And so when it says that God rescued his people out of Egypt, 
and judge them for the evil acts they committed, we know that that same God is the same God in the New Testament who sent his son to die for the sake of our sin. But it's claiming more than that. You see, it's saying that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, is the one who rescued Israel out of Egypt and punished them for their sins. But more than that, it's not just saying that the Son of God in his godness, you see, the, is confusing as the Trinity ends, the, the idea that the Son of God himself at the point in time became a human being and is fully human just as he is fully God is even harder to grasp. But we know this, God, the Son of God, always existed, always was God, and always will be God, and is God right now fully. And yet, at a certain point in time, he became a human being. When he became a human being, he was given the name Jesus. In other words, God, the Son of God wasn't always a human being. He became a human being. And yet... Jude is using that human name to say, Jesus, that Jesus whom you worship as the, the fully God, fully human one who came to die for the sake of your sins and rose again for the sake of giving you new life, he is the one that rescued Israel out of slavery, and he is the one that punished them for their sinfulness. Why is Jude doing that? Why is he purposely using Jesus and his human name as he is what we call incarnate? In other words, took on human flesh. Why is he using that? Well, he's using it to make the same point that he made in, our, in, in the sermon from a couple weeks ago, and that is in uh, verse 4 where he calls Jesus our master and Lord. Double emphasis there. He's making a claim about Jesus that, yes, he is your Savior. Yes, he came to set you free from sin. Yes, he is full of grace and mercy, but he is also someone who has full authority over your life. He is our Lord and he is our master. The very same one, the same Jesus who came to die for your sins, is also the same one who judged his people in the Old Testament. Well, this is important. This means that no one can come along and tell us to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is somehow different or changed in the New Testament. No. Jude says very clearly that it is the same God, that the God who punished evil in the Old Testament punishes evil in the New Testament. We just have this fuller picture of the gospel that even though people choose evil, that God also gives grace and mercy and that if anyone would repent, he takes the punishment for that evil they committed on himself. But he still punishes evil whether that evil, that punishment is turned on himself or whether it is given to those who refuse to submit to Jesus as their Lord and Master. All right? And what he's saying is you have some creeping into the church who are somehow trying to claim the grace of Jesus, but they reject his lordship and mastery over their lives. And he's saying you can't have that. You cannot separate the human Jesus from the God Jesus. They are one and the same. Right? That's important. That then leads on to these people that Jude is writing against who corrupt the grace of the gospel as an excuse to continue in their own sin. We keep reading that, and, and we see he starts to use these Old Testament examples. Look, this Old Testament example are these 
these books that you have read, even there what you see is, is, is a, a respect to God's authority and a respect and a submission to things that are greater to them. And he goes on and he uses this example as he says, look, even as God, this same Jesus who threw angels who, who rejected the authority of God, he threw them in chains. In other words, to reject God's authority brings God's judgment, right? And, and it, that's how it should be. How can an all-loving God not punish evil when it is committed against those he loves, right? Of course God punishes evil. Right? And, and he punishes even the angels who have rejected his authority. But it goes more than that. It says, these people who are sneaking into your churches pretending to be Christians, yet bringing this, this harmful teaching, they throw off all sort of authority in their lives. In fact, what they do is um, look here in verse... Eight. It says, yet in a like manner, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, then he uses this example from the assumption of Moses to say, look, even Michael, this archangel, when he was disputing against the devil for the body of Moses, even he didn't, even he didn't rebuke the devil. Why? It's not his place. He would have taken on more than it was his authority to do. It is God's place. To, and in fact, in Scripture, it says that a couple times, that the Lord himself rebukes the devil. But it's not Michael's place to do that himself. And yet these human beings, in their arrogance, believe that they are above all these spiritual things. It says that... Um, it says even further, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. In other words, the spiritual realms, the authority of God and the authority of his creation, they don't understand it, and therefore they blaspheme it. They treat it as if they were somehow better than it, that they can decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong, and they don't have to submit themselves to any authority that God puts over them. All right? Does that sound familiar? that sound like someone who has decided that they are the master of their own fate and the captain of their own soul. It's a very common human condition after the fall. We assume that we are the masters of our own universe and no one can tell us what to do. And this is what Jude is pushing back again. And what is the result? Well, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And everything that they do understand destroys them. Look, continue reading in verse 10. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, even though they reject this authority and these things that God has taught, they still understand a couple things, but it's only to their destruction. And they become like unreasoning animals, right? So we saw that they use grace as an excuse to continue in their own sins. But notice the descriptions that that produces in them. It produces them in these almost animalistic, unreasoning animal type of behaviors. This is a theme actually throughout all of the scripture. You see, 
when human beings were created, we were created in the image of God. This is actually something we just talked about in Sunday school with the, uh, with the students, but we were created in the image of God. And one of the beautiful things is that we know from the Old Testament, we were made in the image, but in the New Testament, we realize that who is the image? Those who are in my Sunday school class, Sunday school answer, Thank you, thank you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, to be fully human is to be made in Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. We are held together in Jesus, and it is for his glory that we exist. And when we sin against God, when our very first human ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned, they lost something inherently in their humanity in that moment. They lost their purpose. We were made as human beings to glorify God. We were made to bear his image, to glorify the image, the Son. And when we sinned, we lost that ability. And so we became purposeless. It is not something that with all of our striving, we could regain. And you see that in humanity to this day. Human beings are always searching for a purpose with their lives. Always searching, but never, ever finding. We lost something essential to our humanity in that day that cannot be recovered apart from Jesus. And so we become, as we indulge in sin, the less we become like the image, the more we indulge in our own sinfulness, the less human we become and the more animalistic we will come. C.S. Lewis gives a great illustration in one of his writings where he, where he, he draws this image of a grumbler. You see, uh, and I will butcher this for those of you who've read it, but the image essentially is this, that what starts off as a human being grumbling, eventually the grumbling grows and grows and grows, and what you have left is no longer a human being that grumbles, but all you have left is the grumble. One of the worst punishments for sin that we see in the Bible comes at the beginning of Romans, and I mentioned this last sermon in Jude as well, but it bears re-mentioning, is not is not the punishment that God directly gives to sin, although he does do that. He is Lord and Master, and he can do that. It's more that he gives them over to their sin. That is the, one of the worst punishments we could get. In other words, God says, this is what you want. I will give it to you fully. And so when you start to indulge in that sin, you begin to lose your purpose and your humanity, and you become that sin. What starts off as a human that grumbled becomes nothing left but a grumble in eternity when they give themselves over fully to that sin. And that's what is going on here, that they become less human and more like unreasoning animals as they pursue their sensuality. They're like animals chasing after their desires without thinking and reasoning and being restrained by conviction and character. And so the more they give themselves into that, the less of who they were meant to be is shown. Right? And this is what Jude is writing against. This is why he says it's such a problem to give yourself over to sin like this. And, and he goes on to describe them further. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. All Old Testament stories where Cain, in his jealousy of his brother, gave himself over to murdering his brother so that he wouldn't be compared to him. He gave a less, uh, he gave less 
of an offering than Abel did to God. And instead of going back and giving a better offering, he thought, you know, I'll just take away the competition. He gave himself over to sin. And from there on, the very first murder, murder has multiplied out of jealousy and contention ever since humanity. Or we have Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was hired to prophesy against the Israelites. But God would not let him do it. He closed his mouth. He didn't let him utter prophecies against that. So in his cleverness, he goes, you know, if I can't curse the Israelites with my prophecies, I can make them curse themselves. How did he do that? Well, he convinced the Israelites to break God's command and to have sexual relationships with those outside the people of Israel. In other words, to choose for themselves their own preferences when it came to sex and sexuality, which is what Jude has been talking about, right? And so in their sin, they brought curse and destruction on themselves. That is Balaam's era. And then Korah's rebellion, Korah was a person who looked at Moses and goes, why is he the only one who gets to speak for God? Why is he the only one who gets to meet God? Surely, as God's chosen people, any one of us can do it. And so they rebelled against Moses. In other words, they rejected the authority that God put over them in Moses and sought to, for themselves, take on authority that they had no right to. Right? In other words, this thing that, God, that the Holy Spirit through Jude has been talking about, where you take on your own authority, you decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You decide that I don't need Moses, even though God has placed him there. I, myself, can speak to God. And so in casting off Moses, God destroyed Korah and his whole family for that rebellion. This is the examples that he's bringing up. And he's saying these people who are coming in and reject and using grace to continue in their sin and teaching others to do likewise are like this. It's nothing new. They've been doing what human beings have been doing from the beginning. And what type of people are they? We already saw that they have become animalistic, just pursuing their own pleasures. But more than that, you see, you lost something essential in your humanity as you choose sin but you also lose your purpose. Starting in verse 12, look at what it says. These are hidden feasts at your love feast. Now, a reef is one of the most dangerous things you can have if you are piloting a ship, Some, especially if you cannot see it. Many a ship have sunken from a reef. In other words, they are these, they are the reefs at your own love feast, right? This, this, thing that you're supposed to do as Christians where you come together, united in Christ, loving each other as you feast and celebrate God, they're the hidden reefs that if you allow them in your presence will shipwreck your life. But more than that, it says this about them. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, and they're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. What do these have in common? What is a cloud supposed to do? It brings rain. What is a shepherd supposed to do? Take care of the sheep. Not feed themselves, but to feed the sheep. What is a tree, a fruit tree supposed to do in autumn? Produce its harvest of fruit. In other words, these people, because they've chosen their own 
desires and they chose for themselves what is right and wrong and they've thrown off God's authority over their life and choose to live their own way have missed their purpose. They are clouds that carry no water. They are trees that bear no fruit and they are shepherds who feed themselves instead of their flock. And more than that, they keep talking about how it's their waves that only cast up the foam of their own shame. So if you imagine these churning waves in the oceans that are just casting up foam, and they're revealing to everyone their own inner shame. And this last one might be confusing to you. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So in this time, these wandering stars, as they call them, they had these these stars that they saw, that they didn't follow the natural pattern that the rest of the stars had, and they didn't glow as brightly. They were dim. And what were they? Well, we now know they are planets, but the idea is because they chose their own path, instead of following the patterns of the heavens, they were doomed to be lonely and dim and utter darkness. In other words, the life that you live as you throw off God's authority is one without purpose, one that is lonely and dim, and one where you cease to be the full human being that you were created to be and to sin instead into just pursuing your own pleasures unthinkingly, just as the animals do. All right? And, by the way, in other words, those who reject God's authority lead a life without purpose. And that life ends in destruction. You see, it's not just that they continue to pursue their own pleasures to their own destruction. It also God, who is holy and who is loving, must judge them for the evil that they have committed against other human beings. And so we see there that God, that Jesus, who is full of grace and mercy, is also the Jesus who judges sinners for their evil actions. And so we see in this prophecy of Enoch, in this book of Enoch, we see that it is these, these people who pursue their own desires, that God comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way and the harsh things they say. In other words, their whole life has become ungodly. Our whole life has become something that is against God. They have made war against God and all that God has declared to be good. They have made themselves his enemies. And so God will not idly stand by. And, and to understand this fully, you have to understand that part of who God is is that he created everything. But not only that, but within himself, within Jesus, he holds all things together. All of us live and breathe and move only because God is holding us together every moment. So if you choose in your life to make war against God, the irony is the only reason you're allowed to do that is God is holding you together right now as you rebel against him. If you just cease, the rebellion would cease because so would you. That's the irony. For as much as these people think that they are the master of their own faith, that they will be unbending towards God. They shake their fists at the heavens. They only exist because of God's kindness and patience. In fact, God said that for right now, he is withholding his judgment out of kindness. Yes, he is letting the consequences of sin 
to some extent fall back so that people will see those consequences and repent. But he's withholding his full judgment at the moment. Why? So that people might repent. He says that in the scripture. Right now what you see in the world is God's patience and kindness towards us. You might look and you go, what about all these awful things? Yeah, this is just God and his patience allowing some of our consequences to fall on us. So we might see that, be disgusted by it, turn away, repent. But he's actually withholding much of the, the judgment that is to come. And that warning should alert us so that we turn to God if for no other reason than for self-preservation. So is this life, this unbowed life, actually better? And I think even in our own literature, we recognize the folly of this carried to the extreme. Um, one, one story I thought of in particular, but there's many like it, but it was used in the book of Harry Potter. I know many of you might not have read it. Um, I'm more nerdy than many of you. That's okay. But there's this character called, uh, in the Harry Potter nerds will have to forgive me because I'll get some of it wrong. Sorry. Uh, but there's this character called Marvolo Gaunt. And he's this really proud older man who traced his lineage from this line of really important and powerful wizards. And he holds on to that. But he himself lives in basically worse than a pigsty. His house is like a mud hut. He doesn't get to have running water or bathe properly, right? He's just this sad old man who has nothing but his own pride. He refuses help from anyone because he is his own master. No one can help him. He doesn't need anyone's help. He takes care of himself by his own power. And he is proud because he has this family heritage and allows him to be bitter and angry and hateful and spiteful while his own life is just sad. And taken to the extreme, this is what our lives look like when we become the captains of our own fate, when we become the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul. You see, God is not some angry cosmic killjoy in the, it, this guy in the clouds looking down at you and saying that he doesn't want you to have any fun. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, the God of the Bible is deeply, deeply concerned about your happiness and your joy. The problem is not that he doesn't want you to be happy, not that he doesn't want you to enjoy these sinful things. It's that he knows that it won't actually give you satisfaction or happiness or joy that all it will produce is maybe a momentary feeling of pleasure, but in reality, it will drive your life to being purposeless and sad and shameful. You'll be so much less than you were ever created to be. And so then what is the other option? If this is what we were being warned to, obviously we're going to get into the conclusion next week where it goes more, but for this week, what does that mean for us as Christians? Remember, this is Jude not calling those outside of the church, but those within the church to be wary. What does it mean for us? Well, if the opposite of what we want is a life where we throw off God's authority and choose for ourselves what is good and what is evil and how we will live our life with no one having any other say, then the opposite is to, and I know this is a dirty word in our culture, but it is to submit. Specifically, submit to God and the authority he puts in our life. And our culture has believed this lie that the submissive person is just this kind of sad, pathetic person who bends to everyone's will and he doesn't make waves and he's quiet. But the picture of the Bible of someone submitted to God is just the opposite. 
You see, when we stop living just for ourselves and our own pleasures, and we actually live as the human beings we were created to be, it is not some sad, mousy, quiet little person. In fact, it is someone made in the very image of God. That's why if you look at the history of Christians in the church, they have joyfully met all sorts of persecution. They've even met death for the sake of not abandoning their faith. If you look at anyone who is truly unbowed and unbroken by the circumstances in their life, they are the Christians who, for the sake of submission to someone greater than themselves, have met death without fear, who have met imprisonment without fear, who have met every persecution without fear because they knew that their God was more powerful than their circumstance. So it allowed them to truly take the bludgeoning of persecution and death. It truly allowed all the clutches of all circumstances to meet them, though bloody, unbowed. In other words, despite all that we think, that becoming the masters of our own faith, throwing off God's authority doesn't actually lead to a courageous, heroic life. What actually leads to it is to stop living for ourselves and our own tiny, sad, little pleasures and to embrace the God of the universe who has created you and knows what you were created for and brings you a purpose more than you could ever discover on your own and more joys and pleasure and happiness than can be contained in this fallen life. And so he will give them to us in the eternity to come. That is the truth of the scripture. God is not calling us to abandon being our own gods because, because, of, uh, because of some pettiness. He's calling us to abandon that because he knows the destruction and the pathetic life that it will actually lead to. And if we're honest, we see this all the time. We see people pursue their own life, their own way, living just for themselves. What it always produces is a lonely, sad, bitter person. If they don't end their life prematurely because of their lifestyle, then at the end of their life, they're just sad. And they're angry. Angry, they, they don't believe in God, but if, but if he did exist, they'd be angry at him. And bitter and lonely because everyone in their life, they've driven off from their, by their own selfishness. This is not the life for you, Christian, to live. You are called to live a life that produces joy and happiness and love as you stop living for yourself, but you live for the glory of the one whose image you are made in. That's what we are called to do. And that's the only way to happiness. If you don't believe that yet, if you still think pursuing your own desires and pleasures will lead you a happier life, then, then I, I challenge you this week, look at those who did it. There are plenty of examples of those who lived their life to the fullest, as we've called it. Have they actually ended up happy? Have you, in all your pursuit of pleasures apart from God, your own choices, has it actually made you all that happy? And so what God calls you to do is to die to yourself, which is painful. I'm not going to lie to you and say it's hard, say it's better than what it is. You have to die to yourself. But when you do that, you're given a new life full of glory and purpose and happiness and joy. Yes, in this life, there will be circumstances that are difficult. 
but they are never without hope of the glory and the beauty and the joy that is to come. So with that, I want to end with a prayer um, and invite you to continue worshiping through song. Father, I pray that those of us today who are clinging to sin out of the false sense that somehow it'll bring us happiness would recognize the lie that, I, that that is and to give it up for the better life in you. I pray that we worship Jesus as our only master and Lord and that we would experience the peace and the joy that comes from only that life, Father. And I pray this all in the name of the Son. Amen.